Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me, Michael Adams, in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders, past and present. This podcast episode has frequent references to sex, homophobia, persecution, mental illness and suicide. It also includes descriptions of murder, corporal and capital punishment and post-mortem dissection. Details given are not gratuitous, but listener discretion is strongly advised. It's Saturday the 16th of March 1872 and Melbourne's draped in green, booming with blarney and cheersing with beers to celebrate tomorrow's blessed St Patrick's Day. The main attraction is the monster procession of the United Irish Benefits Societies, which, with its gorgeous banners and military bands, winds all through the city's main streets before coming to the Friendly Society's grounds, where a festival of sports and entertainments is being held. There are other smaller processions too, and other sporting exhibitions, including the Contest for Championship of the Colonies at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. Stage entertainments also abound. Chief among them, a special Irish entertainment program put on by Mr George Coppin at his Theatre Royal. This comprises the stage production of Faint Heart Never Won a Fair Lady, followed by Irish music, songs, dances and jigs, a trapeze act and tales of old Ireland as told by an old Irishman. But young Irishman Ned Feeney won't be doing any celebrating this St Patrick's Day. In the centre of Melbourne, this son of Dublin, who until recently served as a soldier in the world-famous Royal Irish Regiment, isn't telling tall tales, drinking a jug, dancing a jig, singing a song or running a race. Instead of any of that, he's caged inside Melbourne jail. It's been 11 days now since Ned Feeney allegedly shot and killed his close friend Charlie Marks in the Treasury Gardens. The case is a sensation because it's widely believed, with good reason, that the crime was a mutual murder pact gone wrong. The tragic final act in a scandalous love affair between two men. Yet neither felonious murder nor homosexual activity have been proved. And Ned Feeney isn't saying a word as he awaits his trial. Yet while he sits silently in his cell, out of sight behind the high bluestone walls of Melbourne jail, Ned is also a popular St. Patrick's Day tourist attraction, as is his mortally wounded alleged lover and victim. Today's copy of the Argus newspaper, which contains ads for Irish-themed entertainments and processions, also contains this notice. St. Patrick's Day, The Waxworks, 101 Burke Street East, The Treasury Gardens Tragedy, Marks and Feeney, just added, as found in the above gardens. No extra charge. Open from 9am till 10pm. Admission, one shilling. Children, half price. I'm Michael Adams and you're listening to Forgotten Australia. This is The Gallows of Gay Hate, the final instalment in the miniseries Murder in the Treasury Gardens. Ned Feeney would be represented at trial by up-and-coming legal eagle Mr Hickman Molesworth. As his Australian Dictionary of Biography entry tells us, he, quote, built up a reputation defending criminal cases, and his personal popularity with juries was such that some brought in verdicts for Mr. Molesworth. Mr. Hickman Molesworth and John Buckley Castio, Governor of Melbourne Jail, were on friendly terms. 
On the 15th of March, Mr Castillo wrote in his diary of walking the Melbourne streets with this rising young barrister. Quote, We talked principally concerning the remarkable case of a man named Feeney, who is to be defended by Molesworth. It is one of the most extraordinary cases on record. Mr Castillo described the case again briefly, saying, Their intimacy was very strongly expected to go to the extent of a criminal nature. He said the two men had determined to die in sensational fashion, and described the photograph they'd made as effectively being a rehearsal pose for the Treasury Gardens. Mr Castillo said that why they did it wasn't known, nor was it known exactly what had happened beyond the fact of Charlie Marks being shot and dying. Quote, whether Feeney fired his pistol too quickly for his friend, or whether the other lost nerve and could not fire, no eye saw, and none but Feeney knows. He was, of course, arrested, and is to be tried for murder. Both he and Marks have previously attempted suicide. Mr Castillo's conclusion in this entry remains as true now as it was then. Quote, Here is material for a sensational novel. Who dare use it? The murder trial of Ned Feeney opened in the criminal sessions in the old Supreme Courthouse on the 17th of April, His Honour Mr Justice Edward Williams presiding. Judge Williams had been on the Supreme Court since July 1852. Like his fellow justices, he would punish men convicted of homosexual acts with heavy sentences. In a July 1855 sodomy case, he recorded the sentence of death against a man named John Fielder. Recording death meant the judge wanted to inflict the heaviest punishment while acknowledging that the executive would commute the sentence to life in prison. As the Argus reported at the time, quote, His Honour would submit the case for the consideration of the executive, but the prisoner could never entertain any hopes of regaining his liberty. Life in jail for John Fielder, because he'd been convicted of committing sodomy, based on the evidence of informers. Ned Feeney couldn't hope for much as a man facing a murder charge with homosexual love believed to be his motivation. His defender, bright young Mr Molesworth, entered Ned's not guilty plea. The Crown's prosecutor, future Premier Mr Brian O'Loughlin, argued that the men had not gone out together to commit suicide. They'd gone out to commit what he called cross-murder. Mr. O'Loughlin said that any claim the defence might make that Charlie had shot himself would be ridiculous. One only had to look at the photograph to see the size of the horse pistols the men had used. Charlie could not have fired the shot that killed him. Mr. O'Loughlin hinted at homosexuality when he told the jury that Ned Feeney had had a motive for murdering Charlie Marks. It was this. Ned had been under Charlie's spell. The let's shoot each other with pistols idea, this had been his escape plan. For it to succeed, Ned had to ensure that Charlie didn't fire first. Ned, Mr O'Loughlin said, had played along with the idea that they were both going to die, until the moment he'd blown Charlie out of this world. The witnesses, Constable John Balfour, wine merchant Mr Abraham Clay, Photographer Mr Davies and his assistant James Stewart, Dr Barker and others repeated their evidence from the inquest. A new development was the revelation that Ned's mysterious letter-writing woman known only as A was in fact Annie McKenzie, a former nurse at Melbourne Hospital. 
Melbourne Hospital's Dr William Bradford testified to confirm this and also said he'd known Ned and Charlie for 11 months. Dr Bradford explained to the jury that Ned had tried to commit suicide with chloroform and that it had been very difficult to save his life. He also said that nurse Annie McKenzie had left the hospital shortly after Charlie had been killed. Annie was now suggested as a motive, and her letter to Ned was cited as proof of this. What happened next would have further convinced Mr Castillo that this was the stuff of a ripping novel. See, Annie had, since leaving the hospital, gone to ground. She'd tried to evade police, even when her letter was in the newspapers and tendered in evidence at the inquest. But Annie had now been found by the police during the afternoon of the trial's first day, and she was brought in just minutes before the Crown case concluded. In the oppressively hot court, Annie confirmed the letter was in her handwriting and that it had been addressed to Ned. Then she swooned and fainted and had to be carried from the court, where she speedily came back to her senses. This was described as having happened after she'd concluded her evidence. But if Annie had said anything else, it wasn't reported as confirming any intimate relationship with Ned Feeney. So, mystery still hung over the why of the case. The Argus reported, quote, On this evidence, the case for the Crown was shaped thus, that for some reason which could not be explained, Marx had a hold over Feeney, and that Feeney was for some reason desirous of getting Marks out of the way. There was also probably some jealousy between them about the girl Annie. Whatever may have been the motive, there was little doubt that it was by Feeney's hands that Marks came to his death. The Crown closed its evidence. Its argument was that the law was clear. When parties went out to cross-murder and only one was killed, the survivor was guilty of murder. Mr. Molesworth was in an almost impossible position as Ned Feeney's defender. He wanted to argue that Ned had been insane at the time of the killing. If found not guilty by reason of insanity, Ned would go to the Yarrabend Asylum. This was a horrific fate, but maybe better than hanging. Yet an insanity defence would rely on Ned answering questions about his mental state his inability to know right from wrong, his lack of premeditation, ideation, recollection, something, anything. He might have done so in an unsworn statement, or he could have spoken with doctors who could then be called to give evidence. But Ned Feeney wouldn't say a word. That meant evidence of his mental disturbance would be limited to what Mr Clay and others had observed. Despite Ned refusing to defend himself, Mr Molesworth did what he could. He said Ned had no motive for killing Charlie. It certainly hadn't been for money. As one of the letters showed, he'd turned down a slice of the substantial inheritance Charlie said he was going to receive. Mr Molesworth argued that Annie had not been a motive. Based on what the letter said, Mr Molesworth interpreted, quote, There had been no jealousy between the two, at all events on the part of Feeney, for the girl both seemed to have had a regard for him and had shown a decided preference for him. Mr Molesworth was not going to even hint at homosexuality. While Mr Molesworth couldn't present direct evidence of insanity, he could at least argue a case for it. He told the jury, quote, A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. If these men had been sane... Would they have selected such a public spot in which to commit suicide? And would Feeney have remained lying on the ground after his friend was shot, calmly smoking a cigar, waiting for people to come up, who, he must know, if he were sane, would be attracted to the spot by the report of the pistol? Look at the manner in which they conducted their operations. They did not go at an early hour in the morning when nobody would be likely to be about or to any secluded place, but in broad daylight, and at an hour when there was certain to be considerable traffic through the gardens. Ned, he told the jury, would not speak about what happened, and only Ned knew why. Quote, But all the evidence produced went to show that they were utterly bereft of reason, and they were not, therefore, criminally liable. Just look at Ned now, Mr. Molesworth urged the jury. Quote, there he stands in the dock, the most unmoved person in this court. Was that a sane man? To convict, the jury would have to have no doubts. Perhaps Dr. Barker was wrong, and Charlie had shot himself. After all, there were no eyewitnesses. If Charlie had shot himself, there was also no direct evidence it had been Ned's plan or that Ned had encouraged Charlie. The evidence all indicated Charlie had been in control that day. Mr. Molesworth said the jury had to find Ned Feeney not guilty of murder on the grounds of insanity. They had to spare him from the gallows so he could spend the rest of his life where he belonged, in a madhouse. His Honour, Mr. Justice Williams, summed up. He told the members of the jury they were not to consider insanity as a defence. No such issue had been duly raised in evidence, it had only been raised in argument. His Honour said if the defence had supplied evidence or witnesses of insanity, then the Crown could have countered or rebutted, and left the jury to decide who was right. 
His Honour also explained to the jury the principle of rejecting the notion that because the crime seemed insane, that the person committing it must have been insane. As for motive, the judge told the jury he favoured the Crown's theory, that Ned had taken the opportunity to shoot Charlie to escape his coercive control. And, the judge said, even if Charlie had shot himself, which he did not believe, thanks to Dr. Barker's evidence, and Ned had encouraged, incited, or assisted, then he could also be convicted of willful murder. The primary question for the jury to consider was, had Ned Feeney fired the pistol that killed Charlie Marks? If their answer was yes, whatever the motive, then he was guilty. If the answer was no, and they believed Charlie had shot himself, then Ned might still be guilty. Yet, His Honour could have viewed his own version of the evidence very differently. If Charlie's control over Ned had allowed him to order the deadly pistol duel, and Ned at the last minute had come to his senses and shot first so as not to be shot, then this could have been argued to be self-defence. More crucially, the Crown's theory, and the judge's agreement with it, that Ned had planned the whole thing to be rid of Charlie, didn't make any sense at all. Mr Clay had testified that Charlie was firmly in control. If Ned had plotted murder, why do it in the Treasury Gardens, in daylight, where there was virtually no chance of him evading arrest, charge, trial and the gallows? It seemed clear that Ned Feeney had expected to die. Wasn't that a strong suggestion of insanity? Ned had recently attempted suicide. If he'd succeeded then with the chloroform, the coroner would have heard from witnesses about his drinking and his depression, and almost certainly would have sympathetically recorded that Ned had destroyed himself while not of sound mind. Was what had happened in the Treasury Gardens really so different in terms of his mental state? His Honour could have very reasonably allowed the jury to consider alternative verdicts of insanity and manslaughter based on the evidence the jury had heard. But he didn't. The 12 good men weren't to consider insanity or self-defence. They also weren't supposed to concern themselves with questions of motivation. But could they really not consider what everyone in Melbourne had been talking about for weeks? That Ned Feeney had been in a criminal homosexual relationship that had culminated in a mutual murder pact. Remember, homosexual men were despised. They were hated. Witnesses informed on them. Police entrapped them, juries convicted them, judges tried to hang them, public galleries jeered them, and the press commentators called them monsters. How firmly were the minds of the 12 good men of the jury set against Ned Feeney? Could they conceive that those very attitudes, society's hatred and its persecution, might have contributed very significantly to the despair that had led him to such a desperate act in the Treasury Gardens? If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The jury took 15 minutes to return its verdict. Guilty. This was the moment in capital cases when the newly convicted man's face would be described in reports as turning pale as his shoulders slumped and fear sent twitches through his nerves. But Ned Feeney didn't react at all. Asked if he had anything to say before his honour passed sentence, Ned didn't claim innocence or even give a choked no. Ned didn't say a word. Mr Justice Williams, though, now spoke his mind, and he felt very comfortable dropping the pretense of impartiality and civility. His Honour began by saying he wouldn't say much because he doubted Ned would take any notice. Ned had been found guilty of murder, he said. What had happened or what had been planned was immaterial, except, quote, I do think that if the statement you made is true, that both of you went out to die together, it was a cowardly act on your part when you found that the deceased's life was gone. You did not take the pistol and blow your brains out. Probably this is the severest thing I could say to you, but it was a cowardly thing of you not to perform your part that you had agreed to do. You took his life when he could not return the fire. This was a startling opinion from the bench. His Honour had just an hour ago expounded to the jury that one of the reasons they might find Ned guilty of murder was that he had incited or encouraged Charlie to suicide. His Honour had just done something very similar, saying that Ned had erred by not shooting himself, that Ned had erred by not committing a crime. And this comment, you took his life when he could not return the fire, did not make sense at all. They'd fired simultaneously, or at least that had been the plan. It wasn't a matter of Ned shooting Charlie after he was incapable of firing back. His Honour could not say from the bench that Ned was homosexual. The charge had not been brought in court, despite Dr Barker's evidence supposedly confirming that Charlie had been gay. But His Honour did hint at it, quote, What your motives were for going there are inscrutable. They are known only to you and to him, but they must have been powerful motives. His Honour said he would comment no further, which was comment in itself in the suggestion it wasn't the sort of thing people talked about unless absolutely necessary. Mr Justice Williams then sentenced Ned Feeney to hang, and he told him he would not recommend mercy to the executive. His Honour's cruel extrajudicial outburst was roundly criticised. The Argus said, quote, Suicide is recognised by the English law as a punishable crime, and for a judge to publicly call a man a coward because he did not break the law is an indefensible piece of folly. But when you remember that this judge was at that instant addressing a murderer for the purpose of sentencing him to death, the folly becomes a public scandal which cannot fail to bring discredit upon the judicial office. Other newspapers joined in criticising the judge, and Melbourne Jail's Mr Castillo also remarked in his diary that while the thought that Ned should have shot himself had also occurred to him, 
it had been very foolish for the judge to say so in court. The day after the verdict and sentencing, Mr Molesworth made an application to state a case before the full court to consider a point of law. This was that the judge had erred by not allowing the jury to consider insanity. The problem was, Mr Molesworth had to plead this to Justice Williams. Unsurprisingly, his honour declined to put the matter before the full court. Any evidence about Ned's state of mind should now be brought before the executive. The Public Record Office of Victoria Capital case file I've quoted from in this episode was the document prepared for the Chief Secretary to circulate among the Cabinet members when they were deciding whether Ned should live or die. The Executive would be able to read transcripts of the evidence and the letters. A police constable was tasked with summarising Ned's life into a memo for this file. So, in a few dry paragraphs, Members of the executive would learn Ned had been raised in Dublin, fought in New Zealand and had sunk into suicidal depression while working at Melbourne Hospital. The capital case file also contained memos about the question of insanity. On the 25th of April, Dr William McRae had written to the Chief Secretary to say that before the trial, the Attorney General had appointed him, Dr Paley and Dr Harcourt to inquire into Ned Feeney's mental condition. Remember, Dr McRae had also been on the scene within minutes of the shooting at the Treasury Gardens. His memo read, quote, From the 19th of March to the 13th of April, during which period the prisoner in question was under my observation, he exhibited no sign of insanity, nor has he before or since his trial shown any symptoms of the disease. The other two doctors agreed with this assessment. This trio of medical men had been available during the trial, ready to rebut any defence witness called to claim that Ned was insane. The report they'd been prepared to tender in court read simply, quote, We, the undersigned, having repeatedly and carefully examined the person named in the margin, awaiting trial in Her Majesty's Jail of Melbourne, are of the opinion that they are perfectly sane and have not, during the period they were under our observation, exhibited any sign of insanity. Of course, it would have been difficult to tell, with Ned Feeney not speaking. Which, in itself, could have been seen as evidence of insanity. By the 20th of April, Ned's supporters were circulating a petition that was to be presented to the Governor. It said Ned was insane. This petition was also included in the capital case file. Quote, your petitioners also submit that the conclusion seems irresistible that he was subject to the will of the deceased, Charles Marx, and the fact of his labouring under this delusion made him incapable of understanding the wickedness of the act in question, and therefore, under these circumstances, the prisoner should be exempt from responsibility. The petition criticised Justice Williams' instruction to the jury that they could not consider insanity. About 80 people had signed the blue petition pages, and at the top of the list was wine merchant Mr Abraham Clay. Justice Williams' handwritten recommendation was in the file too. He said that at the trial there was no evidence presented of insanity, and based on what Dr Barker had testified, no reasonable chance that Charlie Marks had shot himself. Judge Williams also unapologetically admitted he'd told Ned he should have shot himself. He faced no censure for this. His Honour went on to say that witness evidence showed Ned had been, quote, under the dominion and control of Marx, whatever Marx desired him to do, he did, however reluctantly. 
this would seem to indicate that Ned had limited culpability, but for his honour, it did not absolve him of guilt, nor was it enough mitigation for him to recommend mercy. In his memo, Judge Williams described Ned and Charlie going to enact their plan in the Fitzroy Gardens. For a man who'd been a Melbourne Supreme Court Justice for 20 years, and who'd sat in judgment on this case, and who'd reviewed the evidence to make this recommendation, it was, at least to my mind, appalling that he was capable of making such a basic mistake, not least in a written document that was literally life and death. And in repeating what seemed the most far-fetched theory, his honour also saw fit to add his own embellishments. Quote, the strong impression in my own mind is he intended to take the life of his companion before any shot could take effect upon himself, that he had some reason to fear Marx, and it may be that Marx had some reason to fear the prisoner. Therefore, they agreed to die together, to bury the secret with them, but that the prisoner had no intention himself of carrying out that purpose, and, as I have before said, took advantage of his comrade in the way described. To bury the secret with them suggested homosexuality. Meanwhile, his honour's assertion that both men had feared one another was not supported by the evidence at all. But this was what the executive was to read and to hear from Judge Williams in person. That the men, both fearing the other would reveal their terrible secret, had agreed to mutual murder, which Ned had then cunningly used to get free of his controlling friend. To me, that is the least likely scenario. My opinion is that Ned Feeney was depressed for all sorts of reasons, persecution likely contributing to his melancholy. He wanted to kill himself. Charlie, in love with Ned, and knowing he couldn't stop him, decided to join him in death. But it had gone wrong. After Ned had fired, shooting Charlie, he had not shot himself with the remaining pistol. Maybe it was a failure of nerve. Maybe he didn't act because he was in shock. Maybe he would have done it had he more time, but people were on the scene within seconds. In any case, Ned survived to face the world's wrath. And from his silence, it's fair to assume he knew from the first to expect the worst. Ned knew that mounting any defense would open him up to questions whose answers would only add shame to his death sentence. While the executive took its time making up its mind, newspaper writers wanted to know how the condemned man was holding up and whether he had made any confessions. Mr. Castillo recorded in his diary on the 21st of April, quote, A couple of reporters interviewed me with regard to the goings-on of Feeney under sentence of death. I had, however, nothing to tell them beyond the facts of his being much as the same as he was before he received the sentence. They can, however, make a paragraph of that, and I suppose that is all they require, though of course one with a little sensation in it would please better than one without anything in it to make the gentle public roar. While reporters did want sensation to make their readers roar, they did make articles from these little chats with Mr. Castillo. On the 27th of April, the Herald reported that Ned, still in irons, maintained a reserved and taciturn manner and, quote, so far has made no sign in the way of a confession. The papers related that he'd been visited by clergy, doctors, and by Annie McKenzie, but he hadn't spoken to any of them about the shooting or anything else substantial, including his likely imminent execution.
On the 3rd of May, 1872, the executive finally met to consider his case, with Mr Justice Williams there to guide them through everything. They decided the law was to take its course. Ned Feeney would hang from the neck until he was dead on Tuesday week, the 14th of May, 1872. It fell to Mr Castillo to deliver the bad news to Ned. He then told his reporter friends how the condemned man had taken it. The Ballarat Star characterised it as being, quote, with the same marked indifference to his fate that he'd demonstrated during the inquest and the trial. While The Age commented, the announcement was received by him with the utmost unconcern. He has since been very quiet and uncommunicative. When Mr Castillo had delivered the bad news to Ned, he'd offered to grant any reasonable request, such as the use of pens and paper. Ned had simply said, no thanks, he didn't need anything. But Ned's demeanour changed after the arrival of a letter. It was from his mother in Ireland. The timing was coincidental. When she'd sat down to write, she had no way of knowing what was happening with him. Ned's case had not then made the Dublin newspapers. Melbourne's papers containing articles about the Treasury Gardens tragedy would take three months or so to cross the seas, and it'd be mid-May before reports of the tragedy started to be published in Ireland. Ned reading his mother's letter had to be devastating. She writing in ignorance. He reading, knowing he'd be in his unmarked murderer's grave by the time she read the news about the shooting. Ned realised his mother would find out what had been said about him. Now, he requested pen and paper and wrote to her. He insisted this correspondence remain private, and it did. In his last days, Ned refused exercise and remained in his cell. He had visits from Annie Mackenzie and from a former comrade in the Royal Irish. At nine o'clock on Monday, execution eve, Ned was visited by Mr Castillo. The doomed man was quite calm and ready to meet his fate but he had something to say, and this was almost certainly what he'd also said to his mother in that letter. Mr. Castillo wrote in his diary, He wished, he said, to make a statement, and that was to deny the allegation that he had been told had been published of his having been improperly intimate with the murdered man Marx. This he solemnly declared to be untrue, and, as a dying man declared, there was not the slightest grounds for the rumour. Feeney wished me to make this statement of his public, and I agreed to do so. Did not go out this evening, but was interviewed by a reporter of the Argus, to whom I told my tale. He, of course, was delighted to get it, as it was something approaching the sensational. It seems to me that Ned Feeney broke his silence so his mother might also read this in the newspapers that reached Dublin, and believe that her son was not guilty of the crime of homosexuality. While Mr Castillo's diary entry confirms the basics of what Ned said to him, Ned had also said more, which Mr Castillo passed on to the newspapers. The Argus reported Ned had, quote, spoke disparagingly of Marx and said the latter had professed to be very fond of him and was very troublesome in consequence. He requested that this statement should be made public and Mr Castillo promised that it should. Mr Castillo, the Argus reported, had said that from his experience with condemned criminals, especially Catholics, immediately before execution, and from the solemn manner in which Ned spoke, he believed he was telling the truth. But the Argus was sceptical. 
This statement, it may be observed, even if true, does not affect the question of the murder, except insofar as it tends to remove one motive which has been assigned for the crime. On Tuesday the 14th of May, not long before 10 o'clock in the morning, Ned had his iron struck off and was readied for hanging by the colony's executioner. This was the habitual criminal and drunkard William Bamford, who'd been in the job 15 years. William Bamford was a colourful character, not least for his habit of shaking his victims' hands before enthusiastically sending them off with a happy catchphrase that was a variation on, that makes number 42, best job in the country. You can read a lot more about him in my book, Hanging Ned Kelly. Suffice to say, William Bamford, like almost all executioners, was a bungling brute in an age when the so-called science of hanging hadn't been developed and clean kills weren't much of a priority for anyone in power. Ned Feeney was taken to the condemned cell beside the gallows on the first level of Melbourne jail. Reporters were down below, watching. When the time came, they said he was firm and steady and calm. The Weekly Times, quote, The culprit displayed as much indifference as a man possibly could who knew that in another five minutes he would be dangling a corpse at the end of a few yards of rope. He submitted to be bound with as much complacence as an ordinary mortal would bear the application of the tailor's tape to measure him soft a new suit of clothes. He muttered the responses to the priest's ghostly consolations, walked to the middle of the drop with a firm step and stood there seemingly as a matter of course. This was the part of the ghastly process where men might say last words or where they might display their courage or their cowardice. Ned Feeney said and showed nothing. William Bamford shook his hand, lowered the cap over his face, stepped back off the platform and pulled the bolt. Ned dropped. The Herald's reporter was appalled, saying, quote, the unfortunate man struggled for fully three minutes after the fatal rope had extended its length. So clumsily had the mechanical part of the operation been performed by the common hangman. Other papers also described a botched hanging due to William Bamford not having adjusted the rope properly, with Ned Feeney jerking around for several minutes before he was finally still. Such horrible spectacles, though, were common enough that they only merited real outrage when the hangman got it really wrong and there was a lot of suffering. Ned Feeney jerking around on the end of his rope for a few minutes wasn't that newsworthy. But newspapers did want to discuss Ned's last-minute comment on what was dubbed the filthy accusation of homosexuality and the remaining mystery of what had really happened in the gardens and why. The Herald reported... During the last few days of his life, he has been most anxious to leave the impression that he is entirely innocent of the charges made against him in connection with his unfortunate victim, and he wished this to be understood, although he made no actual denial of details in direct terms. He never once alluded to the terrible tragedy in the Treasury Gardens, and he remained doggedly reticent to the last. The Age, quote, the medical evidence given at the trial certainly led to many surmises of an improper intimacy having existed between the two men, but to the last moment, and with his dying breath, Feeney denied any grounds existed for such a suspicion. Maybe it had only been a platonic relationship. 
but The Age now claimed that in his final hours, Ned had disparaged Charlie, saying, Feeney further stated that Marx had continually boasted of an intimacy with Park and Bolton, of London notoriety. Everyone knew what this meant. Frederick William Park and Thomas Ernest Bolton were English homosexual men who wore women's clothes in public and for photographs. Caught cross-dressing in public in 1870, they were arrested, subjected to intrusive physical examination for evidence, charged with conspiring to commit sodomy and held in jail for two months pending trial. The case had been a sensation in the Australian press at the time Ned settled into Melbourne after finishing military service in New Zealand. Although the two men had been acquitted of sodomy, to be known as a Park or Bolton meant to be known as an active homosexual. Of course, Ned's late-breaking denunciation of Charlie begged the question. If he'd been so appalled by the man, why had they remained so close for so long, right up until Charlie's death? Why had he kept letters in which Charlie professed his undying love? Why had he stood with them holding hands in a photograph made just before they went to the Treasury Gardens to shoot each other? I think this denial and disparagement was for Ned's mother's benefit. While the newspapers had reported the details of Ned's calm before the botched hanging, Mr. Castillo had a different perspective on those terrible moments because he'd been up there on the platform doing his duty. His diary entry from the 14th of May records a bad start to a bad day. Quote, Got up this morning feeling very unrefreshed, having taken more gin and water last night than was good for my complaint. Put on my black clothes and went into the jail to see things were in readiness for the execution of Edward Feeney. At 10 o'clock, the usual business was transacted. Except it hadn't quite been business as usual, he went on. The sheriff and I went to the cell and Feeney came out. Old Bamford was ready to pinion him and did so a little more clumsily than usual. In putting the cap on Feeney's head, he had a little difficulty getting it over the hair. At such a time, a second seems like a minute and a minute almost an hour. Feeney prayed to the last. He was evidently in a great state of fear and shook a great deal. This I could see, being close to him. The bystanders some little distance off thought he showed little signs of concern. Bamford did the pulling tight the rope a little too hard, and when the bolt was drawn the body scarcely fell fairly, the rump catching the side of the scaffold and thus breaking the fall. Mr. Castillo, who'd seen his share of executions close up, said, Feeney seemed to struggle much longer than men who were hanged usually do. Dr. Barker, however, styled the horrible spasmodic movement as simply reflex and of no consequence. Dr. Barker could not, however, answer my question as to why some, when executed, were troubled with reflex movements and others were not. Dr. Barker relished a good hanging, not just for the chance to try out new knot placements, but because, as a man of science, it gave him that prize of the age a still warm, dead body. As we heard back in part one, Ned's childhood home, the confectionery shop in Temple Bar, Dublin, had once been the centre of a hoax about a kid being snatched for the dissection table. Now Ned Feeney was dead on that table. As Mr. Castillo wrote with evident disgust, quote, Medical students under the direction of Dr. Barker reveled in the luxury of a fresh and healthy corpse. 
Dr. Barker seized an even rarer opportunity, as Mr. Castillo wrote, quote, There had been some strange stories told of the connection that existed between Feeney and the murdered man. Barker exposed Feeney's rectum and both he and Dr. Yule said it told of a vicious indulgence. I was asked my opinion, or rather, to coincide in theirs, but I declined as I had no experience of what a healthy rectum would represent. Mr. Castillo's droll commentary suggests he took a very dim view of Dr. Barker and his obsessions. Ned Feeney's post-mortem indignities didn't end there. He also received the attentions of head-reading hairdresser Joseph Doubleday, who used plaster of Paris to make his death mask. But this self-styled phrenologist did more than that. To make the cast, he had to cut off the hair and beard. Why let those go to waste when Max Kreitmeier, owner of the waxworks, would pay handsomely for such one-of-a-kind souvenirs? Six days later, The Age predictably reported, quote, The cast of Feeney's head, exhibited in the window of the waxworks exhibition, has attracted a large number of gazers. It is stated that the proprietor had obtained the actual hair and beard of Feeney to place on his wax model. The majority of Melburnians believed that Ned Feeney was guilty of murder and that justice had been done. Yet, not everyone was carping. The Evoker Mail was among the critics. This case, of an exceptional nature, it said, had been preceded with by the executive with rather undue haste. The paper made excellent legal points. Quote, it has ever been an admitted theory, even from the earliest days of lawmaking, that the punishment of a crime should depend upon the moral responsibility of the person committing it. In other words, that the will to commit one is the test point, the act itself only proving the consent of the will. In accordance with this theory, it has been the practice to extend a clemency to those unfortunates who, through mental derangement, cannot be held responsible for misdeeds, and it is the opinion of many the unfortunate man alluded to should have been included in this class. The evoker mail went on. Every feature of the tragedy points to the conclusion that both men were insane, at least on the one subject of mutual destruction. The strange behaviour of Feeney at the time and his apparent indifference to his fate are also confirmations of the supposition. We are aware that it is now too late to do any good in this particular instance, but we feel constrained to express an opinion that further time should have been allowed in which to prove whether the man was really sane. We can't speak with the dead and we can't know the truth. We can see what Ned and Charlie looked like on the day that led to their deaths, with the photos among the most striking and haunting in Australian history. We've got those pictures, but we don't have the full picture. We don't know Charlie's background or much about him other than he seemed like a nice, quiet and dutiful fellow until he became what we might think of as manic. We do know a little more about Ned's background, and we can perhaps understand some of the trauma that had contributed to his depression. We don't know for sure that they were physically intimate, but the strongest evidence suggests that they were. We don't know the actual extent that fear of persecution and hatred contributed to their states of mind, nor can we say with certainty how much the same homophobic hatreds swayed the judge and the jury. 
but it's useful, I think, to try to view everything we've heard through a slightly different lens. What if Ned Feeney and Charlotte Marks had posed for photos with pistols, written goodbye letters, and then gone to the gardens to shoot each other? What if every other aspect remained the same, including love letters in which Ned's affections seemed to wax and wane while Charlotte's remained passionate and demanding? What if witnesses testified Charlotte had controlled Ned and that he'd been drinking heavily and was suicidally depressed after a previous recent attempt at his own life? What if, despite all this romantic melodrama, Ned refused to speak on the record, so it was never exactly clear if Ned and Charlotte had been physically intimate or had just been close friends, or if there had been another woman involved? What then? I don't think it's unreasonable to say that Justice Williams would have offered the jury the choice between manslaughter, insanity and murder, or that Ned would have been regarded much more sympathetically by a heterosexual identifying 12-man jury, even if they also privately thought he'd been a romantic fool enslaved by an unstable woman. Not wanting to hang a misguided tragic romantic who'd clearly also intended to die, they may have spared him the murder conviction, or at least recommended mercy. This recommendation might also have been made by his honour, and the executive might have commuted the sentence to life. Remember, as we heard in part one, this was a Melbourne in which recently a man who'd callously caved in his brother's skull with a hammer had served only two-thirds of a four-year sentence for manslaughter. The leniency had been the work of a sympathetic judge, Sir Redmond Barry, who'd also sentenced a man to eight years for sodomy and said he'd wished he could inflict 150 lashes. Other judges had tried to hang at least one homosexual man, and they'd sentenced others to life imprisonment, to decades of hard labour on the roads in chains, and some had been flogged to within inches of their lives. Ned Feeney might have been convicted in a court of law, but he was hanged on the gallows of gay hate. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. I'll be back with new episodes very soon. As always, thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.